Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Mark Thompson. Get woke. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, we are less than 100 days from Election Day, November 3rd. And one organization that has made a very big difference over these past few years to see to it that African-Americans get out to vote and and our votes are appreciated for the difference they make is Black Voters Matter. We talk about Black Lives Matter, but this is Black Voters Matter. And we're very fortunate to have with us on Make It Plain today, my dear friends who we were just remembering how long we've known one another. Uh, and how much how much older I look. Uh, <laughs> how much better you look. <laughs> I appreciate you. Latasha Brown. <laughs> how y'all doing? Doing good. Doing good. How are you? Good, good. I know you all are working hard. Um, Latasha, let's begin with you. How did Black Voters Matter, first of all, even come to be? You know, that's an interesting question. Cliff and I always kind of changed the trajectory of the question because the truth of the matter is the organization was founded, it was incorporated in 2016. 
But really this organization, as we have been reflective, almost kind of like the conversation we had with you, this has been 25 years in the making, that the actual incorporation of it was in 2016. Um, it was prior to the general election. Um, and it, 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 what Cliff and I have both recognized that that all the work that we were doing and what we were seeing in our communities, we were not even hearing the way, the narrative about black voters were problematic. That black voters were talked about as victims and not necessarily um, as having power. That they were even, in many of the conversations, they were marginalized, they were not even a factor. It was about what the white, what, what this white moderate voter was gonna do or what the white Midwestern voter was gonna do, right? Or who Trump's base was. And so part of, um, of who the people that would come of uh, uh, vote for him. And so we saw the marginalization of black voters even further in the national discourse, right? And in local elections, we saw things going on as well. And so a couple of things we wanted to do, we wanted to um, create and we wanted to not just mobilize black voters, we wanted to organize black voters um, and organize our power. And so I say the, you know, I'll be I, I would love to hear what Cliff thinks that we kind of started, but I don't know, like literally, I mean, that's what we incorporated, but literally it's been 25 years. I remember we've worked together over the years and I remember sitting in, um, we had a hole in the wall office, we didn't have no money. <laughs> we just were young folks with big dreams and compassion and a love for black folks. And I remember us sitting um, in the office really envisioning what we would do if, you know, how we could expand the work that we were already doing it. Cause we were doing the work broke. We were just wanted if we could actually have resources to put on the ground. And so I would say that this has been a vision that's been in manifestation mode for the last 25 years. Amazing. Cliff, what about you? Did you? Yeah, I would, I would answer much the same way. You know, we usually say that there's two starting points. There's the technical starting point, right, in terms of incorporation and all that. You know, there's the, the starting point of, like, our connection to it, in which case, you know, we go back to Selma. In fact, I was just talking to somebody earlier today about our role in the, the year 2000 mayor's race in, in the city of Selma. Um, I think you know well that, that Joe T. Spillerton and the man that was mayor in 1965 on Bloody Sunday remained mayor in Selma up until the year 2000. And that was just shortly after, right when I moved to, to Selma. And that was my first engagement in electoral organizing. Before that, I was really skeptical about like, you know, elections as an as a, as a organizing strategy. But my involvement in that election, right, along with Latasha and so many other incredible folks, you know, like Tarana Burke and others, um, you know, my involvement in that and the reaction I saw of people in the streets People were dancing in the streets when we voted. When we said Joe got to go and he was actually gone, and I saw the reaction that people had, that's when it really clicked for me mm. that this is a power building strategy. So that's the second point where I talk about the origins. But I think, um, you know, after this week and this weekend, and I think Latasha would agree that there's a third starting point, right? It very much, you know, the, the, the approach, right, and the, and the purpose and the objectives in many ways started on that bridge in Selma. You know, it started with the likes of John Lewis and, and Amelia Boynton, right? And, and, and that, that march and that seeking of the right to vote, because to, to this day, much of our work is still grounded in the fact that we're fighting against some of the same voter suppression that they were fighting against, right? And so, so some of it lies in that part of the Selma story, but it also lies in this other part. Of, and, and Brother Mark, I know you, you, you know well about some of the comments that were made um, at, the, at the John Lewis funeral and the remarks that were thrown 
um, the shade that was thrown at Stokely Carmichael, but our work is grounded just as much in the work that was done in Lowndes County after Bloody Sunday, as much as it's based in what happened uh, as, as part of Bloody Sunday. It's not, it's, it's not just based on the voter suppression and seeking the right to vote, but it's based on our efforts to get the power that we thought would come from having the right to vote. And the work that was done by Brother Stokely Kwame Torrey um, and, and the Lowndes County Freedom Organization and others all around the South and all around this country to perfect our use of this balanced strategy, that's where our work is, is really grounded. So we have a lot of starting points for, for Black Voters Matter. You know, speaking of which, I don't even know if Bill Clinton realized what he said and the mm. paradox in what he said. He said that- um, He realized it. You think he realized what he said? Oh, I do, I do. I think that at the end of the day, what black people have been reduced to in this country is political participation. And instead of really seeing that ultimately it was always about building black power. And all if people only have a problem when we start saying black power. Like, well, what you think we voting for as an activity? Like ultimately mm -hmm. our reduction, like in terms of our engagement, when it is at the service of the Democratic Party, when it's at the service of white electeds, then it's fine. But when we have the audacity and unmitigated gall to ask for power, then that's when there becomes a disconnect. So on some level, to the extent he may not have understood how deeply entrenched the values of black power are throughout even the civil rights movement. Now he may not have known that, but the fact that he actually raised as an issue is because it is an issue for him. Because at that point, wait a minute now, it's one thing y'all talking about y'all trying to vote. Another thing y'all talking about you want some power? Them three years, y'all done, done went off the deep end. So ultimately there is something fundamentally that he knew exactly what he was saying. And that's very indicative of how the white power structure, including the democratic power structure, has treated black voters in this country. Well, what I would say is this. The paradox in what he said though, you're right. I mean, he, he knew what he was saying out of his own brain, but what he didn't realize he was saying and this is, these are his exact words. There were two or three years where the movement went a little bit too far towards Stokely. Wow. But in the end, John Lewis prevailed. So let's think about this. <laughs> if you are still uttering someone's name and only their first name, they must have prevailed too. Mm -hmm. He said mm -hmm. Stokely. He didn't say Stokely Carmichael because everybody mm -hmm. knows who Stokely was and what he did. But he had to say John's whole name. Stokely, but John Lewis prevailed. So the fact that you even have to acknowledge Stokely is it's impossible to just dismiss what happened. You not know, that, but his analysis is off. The truth of the matter is Stokely worked not only did it not prevail, it's more relevant than ever now. We've got black folk, white folks, Asian folks, Latin X folks saying black lives matter. That comes out of the frame of black power. So that are literally using that. So and ultimately what he framed is he used, he used his own political frame and analysis to attach that. He's saying that what he was saying is he was telling us who they are, who he is. Just yeah. as like Maya Angelou said, when somebody tell you who they all believe him, what he was telling us is that what he identified with was that that, power, that movement of black folks that was literally around the participation of black voters. I mean, by the participation of black folks. What he did not identify with is that, <laughs> that when we, that beyond the participation, that this was really around about black power. That's the part that brought him discomfort. 
So he actually said that if you listen to the statement, it's embedded in that. He may not have intended to show himself, but he did. Well, and the other thing too, Cliff, that, that is a little bothersome in this is that a lot of white historians have taken this moment to litigate what they don't even know about what happened. Right. Um, and there's been a lot of revisionist history. Like, you know, oh, well, he lost to Kwame Ture. Well, first of all, it's my understanding the presidency of SNCC was only like a two or three, two or three year term. So John would not have been, I think some white folks decided that he was supposed to be president of SNCC for 30 years, which defeats the purpose. It was a student organization. Second of all, and I talked to John and I talked to Bernard Lafayette the other day. They, as much as they want to make a big deal about Stokely and all that, they invited Malcolm X to Selma. That's right. So That's everything right. couldn't have been that far apart and crazy. And we saw Dr. King marching with Stokely while he's saying black power. So what a lot of white revisionist historians and obviously presidents do now to fit the narrative they need, it was a little more complicated uh, than that. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a deeply complicated history. And, and the truth is that, you know, we've gotten to a point where they've done said so much to our history where even we don't feel comfortable. Heck, even folks who participated in the history don't feel comfortable telling the history sometimes. You got some of the young folks who invited Brother Malcolm to Selma who don't really feel comfortable telling that story because it's not consistent with the narrative that have become, has become so, so accepted, right? It's so safe and so traditional that you got folks that don't feel comfortable telling their own doggone story. We yeah. were, I was in a meeting where um, some sisters who were in Perry County. I know you know the history of, 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 of Perry County and the role that, that Perry County played in, in the death of murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson played and even leading to a Selma to Montgomery march, right? And so, um, but what a lot of people don't know is the night after Jimmy Lee Jackson was killed in Perry County, there was another meeting. There was another mass meeting because the folks would not be you know, they would not be uh, uh, led astray, right? And so they had another meeting and, and a sister tells me she showed up and she looked around, she got upset because there were no men around. And she said, what's going on? Where, where are all the brothers at, right? Have they, they, have they gotten scared? Did they let, you know, there's this shooting, is this murder intimidated? And the person she was talking to said, mm -mm, they're up on the roof. And you had brothers who are up on the roof with guns because they were saying, we're going to have this mass meeting tonight and we're not gonna have the same thing that happened the night before. But even in listening to her tell this story, there was a discomfort in it because she felt like she was revealing a dirty secret that wasn't consistent with the history of, 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 of the nonviolent tradition. And we've got some great victories that come out of that, that tradition, but it wasn't as, 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 um, as cut and dry as a lot of people would lead us to believe. And white historians have done that and then we cater to it sometimes ourselves. There's shame and telling some of the true history of the civil rights movement. Natasha, you, did you not really get first involved in, in politics and activism through the Bridge Crossing Jubilee? Am I right about that? It, it, it was attached to that. It was actually through 21st Century Youth Leadership Movement, which mm -hmm. was an organization that grew out of um, grew out of the bridge crossing Jubilee. You know, the funny thing in some ways, I don't, I don't remember any period of my life, I wasn't political. <laughs> mm. um, even as a child, you know, I was, I was drawn to that. But what, what 21st century did for me, 
and working as a young woman, I had access for the first time to people who were icons. Like I had access to the C.T. Vivians and the Jesse Jacksons and the Bernard Lafayettes and the mm -hmm. Amelia Boynton's and Marie Foster. And so mm -hmm. those folks, we were around them and we would listen to them and we would just wanted to be around them and hear the stories and being in the National um, uh, Voting Rights Museum. And then every year during Jubilee Festival, you know, we got access to a different group of people, people who had been a part of the Black Power Movement and the Civil Rights Movement. And in preparation of that, because we were running youth camps, we would actually study. We would study and create program around that. So in many ways, that experience actually helped with the shaping of, of, of my, political, um, my political journey because I had direct access to those who had made that history. Yeah. And, and Cliff, how about you? I know you were a part of, were you a part of 21st century? Two Cliff, when I when I came, I came. I got involved a little bit later than Latasha did, but I was running one of the sister organizations, the Twenty First um, Century. And so we we would do a lot of programs together. I would help out on some of the camps and and work some of the same folks that were in my program doing arts and cultural stuff or in Twenty First Century. In fact, one of the earliest projects Latasha and I worked on, I should sure laugh about this, was a project where we actually went into schools and we were doing a black curriculum. Um, to, with, with a group of students in some of the schools throughout a couple of different counties within within the Black Belt. And so we, we always were doing that kind of like youth work, um, electoral work, social, racial justice work, all of it was intertwined. Um, now, what about, Latasha, some of the most significant victories of Black voters matter? And obviously, I guess the Smitherman race predates the, the name Black Voters Matter. But you all have had some significant victories. In fact, can't we give Black Voters Matter credit um, for Doug Jones defeating uh, pedophile Roy Moore? So what I will say, because I because I think that you know I, I want to, I think that that was a collective effort. What I can say is we certainly we certainly um, um, roll, uh, hold our role. So we certainly contributed, um, but there were. Folks, I want to lift up Faya Ture and Senator Hank Sanders and others who are from that community who literally led that work and kept focus on it. So I do want to say, and then there were others as well, and I think that that's part of what, you know, I'm always constantly telling young folks that, that part of times activists will create a new organization and you act like it just started when you showed up, right? That, that we have never been in a community and there weren't organizers and activists already there. Part of our victories have been the victories of the people being able to provide support and capacity to the people that are already there that actually give them, you know, I, I tell people all the time, I was like, we kind of like some, some special ops, some nonviolent special ops. You know, we bring in the paratroopers. We come in and we support and if, of the, the folks that are already there. Some of the, the victories that, you know, it's interesting because I'm gonna tell you what came up to me when you asked that question. Ironically, what came up to me is, um, one of our first victories was the loss. And then, I, and this was years ago, this is before we started Black Voters Matter. And I'll say why I'm, I'm gonna put in the victory. I won't go through all the details around it, but I had run for a public office. And in that, um, and we had worked hard, law, we had worked hard. <laughs> we had worked hard around this particular race, but that, that is when I, we literally really realized how insidious voter suppression was. So what the value of that race was is that we were at a firsthand experience around voter suppression. What is interesting is I remember we knew that stolen, we didn't know how. And Cliff, 
uh, because he is meticulous with, with numbers and paying attention. I really can't even remember how you figured it out, Cliff, but I remember we stayed up almost, he was almost like all night, he was going through these papers and going, he was like, and it was funny because he knew he was onto something. Um, and then he figured out how they had stole the election. And then we actually wound up challenging it and wound up going to the, um, to the state Supreme Court. But the fact of the matter is not so much about the race, but in that loss of the race, we really were really, we realized that one of the issues around um, um, biggest threats to democracy really was around voter suppression and how common it was. That it wasn't just like an isolated incident, but it was extremely common. And so that was one of the pieces. Now the fast forward it, to where we actually got receipts of, of victories in the traditional sense. Um, Cliff, I'll let you share about particularly our first, one of our first victories um, that happened actually in Southwest Georgia. Cliff, you wanna share? Yeah, it was actually the very first race that we did back in 2016. You know, even more than the presidential, we focused on one county in Georgia, in, in uh, um, Sumter County, right? And the, the, the county seat is America's Georgia. Um, now, if this county sounds familiar to some, some folks, is because this was the site of what's known as the Stockade Girls or the Lee County Stockade Girls. It was back in 63, a group of teenage girls who were protesting the segregated um, uh, movie theater. And, you know, as will happen during, you know, some of these protests, they were arrested um, and they were thought they were just being taken to, to jail and, you know, the regular whatever. What wound up happening was that they were taken to a stockade in a whole other county and nobody knew where they were right it wasn't even a regular jail it was like a like a civil war stockade their own parents didn't know where they were located it was weeks later that a, that a stick photographer was able to track them down and get photographs of this i go through that history to say this that when we looked at the reason why we chose that county was because when we looked at the demographics it didn't match the lack of political power given the, the percentage of black folks, there should have been more political power in that area. We, so that something was off and, you know, coming from Alabama, our experience is if we, if we got a certain percentage of, the, of a county, we gotta have some seats, right? That's our, that's our Alabama expectation, but it wasn't that way in this county. And, and part of it was because of that history. So we got involved last minute, partnered with a local group there, a long-term activist named Bob Hughes. Um, and we were able to flip that seat because it was in the hands of a conservative, white Republican um, state legislator. And we were able to flip that seat, even in the midst of, of, of Trump winning the state and, and, and winning that county, that seat, which is the one that we targeted, wound up being flipped. And so that, that's just one victory. And to some folks, that's, you know, they say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's just a state legislative seat. But when you add up these seats, right, when you add up these victories, when you, when you, when you multiply the impact that it has on a people's thinking, right, that they actually can have power you know, city by city, district by district, county by county, next thing you know, you've, you've changed the state, you've changed the South. And as we all know, you know, as the South goes, so goes the country. Yeah, I like the way you put that, the demographics not being consistent with the political power. And that's mm -hmm. a lot of our problem throughout the South. Go ahead, Latasha, you want to say something? I was going to say that seat, another significance of that seat is that that seat kept the Republicans from having a supermajority. Right, right, right. I think we lost. Oh, I think I think we lost her. I, I I know what she was saying. That seat. I'm glad she brought that. I'm glad she brought that up because that that was during an election where there was enough of a change where um um the Republicans were not able to get a supermajority in the state of Georgia, which means a, a whole bunch of things in terms of being able to override vetoes and and even with the redistricting that we're about to have coming up, 
um, in, the, in the year following the census year, you know, whether or not they have that supermajority is critical and that seat was able to keep them from getting it. Right, right, right. The point that I wanted to make is that that one seat kept the Republicans in the state from having a supermajority to a majority. That's a tremendous amount of power um, that just that one seat actually helped um, in a seat around. And we, I think we invested less than $2,000 in that seat. You know, and there's been, been many other races, you know, um, races that we've been involved in. One of the races that I'm most pr proud of is a race that we did in, in, in Nashville, um, where we supported a group of activists and organizers that were working around doing a community oversight board for the, uh, for the police. And so the FOP put in millions of dollars to really be able to stop that initiative. And here these folks who had, I think their budget was less than $35,000. And we gave them the buck of that, that because they had the passion, they out-organized them and guess who won? They beat them, you know? And so I raised that, that we, what we know is if there's some investment, when you put investment with passion, you can be unstoppable, but oftentimes in our communities, you know, people have just expected us to show up for them, um, to participate, for them to actually get power, whether it's a political party, and not show up for the way communities need power. And so what we do, the way that we show up, is the communities that invite us in, we ask them what it is that they are interested in. And when, when they think about power. So some communities were working on DA races, some communities were just working on to get the vote out. And so that's some of the work that we do. You know, can I, can I add one more? Yeah, please, please. please. One, just one more election is is um, and you know, I, don't, I sometimes we hate to just focus on like particular candidates, but this was you know, this moved us because in the Montgomery election last year, so we already talked about how Selma didn't get his first black mayor until the year two thousand. The city of Montgomery, the historic city of Montgomery, right? The, the historic city that just had a tribute for John Lewis just a few days ago. They didn't get their first black mayor. This is a city that's like 70% black did not get their first black mayor until last year, until 2019. And we played a role in helping to make that happen. And it's important for a couple of reasons, but one that's very relevant to like the moment we're in right now is because, um, you know, as Alabama, like many, many of our states and, getting in, and particularly many of the states in the South right now, where you got these crazy governors who have been reopening states in the midst of this pandemic, as Alabama was doing that, and as their cases were surging, you know, their mayor, you know, black mayor, Stephen Reed, decided at, at risk um, to, to go against the council, which had refused to vote for a mask ordinance, but he decided that he would implement one, right, just as a matter of executive authority. Now, what did this do? It, it, within a matter of days, the, the, the skyrocketing cases in Montgomery, That's right. they were on national news talking about Montgomery. That's right. have any more ICU beds, like they were facing a, a critical crisis, but because of what he did, it literally saved lives. And this is just one example of how right. elections have consequences and local elections have consequences in some very real ways in people's lives, especially in the midst of this health crisis that we're in right now. Well, <laughs> what I've been saying to a lot of the, the young activists, you know, we want to do something about the police, but I've been saying to people, you cannot just be a Twitter activist. Mm -hmm. And there's a popular word going around now, you know, performative activism. That's what that ends up being. being. Mm -hmm. What you are, the two of you are, I want everybody to understand this, um, Black Voters Matter, Latasha Cliff. This is real, on the ground, scientific, strategic, um, um, uh, measurable, <laughs> activism. 
And I think some of us think if they get so many likes and tweets that they've actually done something. But those aren't even votes. Mm. So, you know, I hold you all up as examples of real. It's easy to tweet. And I'm not saying Twitter's all bad. But it ain't. It's a means, not an end. It is just a means. And it's even used, as we all know, as a weapon to suppress our vote. You know, um, other countries, we met with Twitter. In other countries, if you post a tweet about voter suppression, they flag your account. They haven't implemented that in America yet. And we were like, why won't y'all do that? Why y'all doing that in Iran? Is we do it in Iran. That's what you, you do it in the United States. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. You all have scientifically measurable activism under your belt. So let me ask you this. Those are some of the victories. What are, obviously, aside from getting Trump out, but what are some of the, the priorities and primary targets for 2020, November 2020, Latasha? So, you know, part of, let me say how we measure our success. You know, I was, it was since um, um, Clinton, I, in some ways I'm glad he brought up Stokely Carmichael's name. No, I'm not because he should have kept his name out of his mouth. But what it did do is, it had me all even. I was so upset. One of the things I did for hours last night, I just looked at clips of Stokely um, and clips that I had seen before, but I have not like looked at in years. And one in particular, uh, which I was so inspired by, and I know I've seen it maybe a million times, and it was off. It was some of the raw footage from his interview on Eyes on the Prize. Mm -hmm. But what he talks about is he talks about the distinction between mobilization um, and organization. And that I think that there is a lack of really understanding. You know, we we have that 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 we often say black even the events that we have, we say we don't hold events. We have organizing opportunities. So to the extent it's an event, if we're not organizing anybody, what's the point? And so we don't believe that voting, even in election, while there's targets and there's, you know, one, I'll just say on the high level, that not I don't think that is just critical for the presidential election, but there's also the Senate, the US Senate got to go. The bottom line, they got to go. And so mm -hmm. there's two Senate seats that are up in Georgia. There's another Senate seat that is vulnerable in Alabama. And so I'm ready, and there are a couple of senators that need to go from Kentucky um, and South Carolina. And right. so the point being is I think that there's some Senate seats as well that we need to look at and there's some local races as well, but more so than get into just the details of the people around that. I think what is important is where I think the biggest missed opportunity for black folk um, building power in this country is the day after the election, everybody just go on like everything is fine. That's not for us. So what we're thinking for November, that one, that there would be some substantial victories that we can point to. One, at stopping a fascist, openly racist, nationalist, misogynist president being one, and I'm talking from my C4 space, right? Two, really being able to shift the Senate and pick up some local seats that actually will have make a difference in our community. But more importantly, that the organizations and people on the ground, that there's more organization, that there's more capacity so that the group says not just on elections, they can respond to the shaping of the education platform in their community, they can immediately go into shaping around who's going to be held accountable. They can start envisioning what they want for their community and put those things in motion. So for us, November, November the 3rd is not the end for us. 
right? It is a means to an end. It is one way that we think that we can engage to reduce harm in our community and actually demonstrate our agency to get some representation, but also hoping that we are able to capture and build off this energy in this election cycle that can actually go deeper, right? And literally start building the capacity of organization so that ongoing, we can do this work to move us closer that way of achieving democracy. Because Cliff, our political activism and struggle just can't be uh, every first Tuesday in November, every election year. It has to be year round, correct? Exactly, in fact, that's one of our core beliefs. We have five core beliefs and one of those is we say Black Voters Matter 365, meaning that we've got to do this work and we've got to support the on the ground organizations that are doing this work 365 days a year. That means it's not just about November 3rd. It's not even just about the primaries are important. And one of the things we always preach about is getting folks from around the country that usually only care about November because they want to flip something. We tell them, you got to care just as much about the primary elections because in our communities, sometimes that's, that's the election, right? And sometimes the difference between candidates during those primaries are just as stark as the differences between the candidates in the general election, right? And so... Um, so you got to care about the primaries, but more importantly, you got to care about the work that goes on even outside the general and the primary. You got to care about the organizing that goes on even outside of the electoral context. You got to think about the groups that right now are, are organizing on the ground and protesting on the ground around issues of police violence and defunding the police. That work has to take place 365 days out of the year, and it's going to have to take place after November 3rd. 2020, because guess what? A lot of those battles are based on local um, local policies, right? It's, it's based on, um, you know, who's on city council and what they're putting into the budget or what the mayor is doing. And a lot of those are going to take place in 2021, more so than 2020, right? So we always say there's no such thing as an off year. So being about Black Voters Matter 365 means it can't just be driven by one election or one election cycle. It's got to be about you know, um, digging in on this work all throughout the year and in each year, even if it's not a sexy, even number year. So Latasha, did I understand you? Are you saying Cliff is the numbers guy? Cliff <laughs> is the numbers guy. I'm clear. I am, we are, we work really well together because I, <laughs> because we balance each other off. I am clear. My brother is excellent with numbers and systems. He's a systems genius. He actually, I often tell him this, and he hates when I say it, but he's literally the smartest person I know. He's extremely brilliant, but he put he has a way of making making it be real in terms of creating systems. And so we have the balance between the passion, the big ideas, and then putting the systems in place. And I think we have to see we have to see movement like that as well. That we need or we need. We need the passion and the fire and the creativity, but we also have to have the structure. We have to have the structure and the organization and that in the balance of those two, that's how we move towards getting power. So, so I, so we'll, we'll compare you to Marion Barry. He was a numbers guy. That's what he was. Mm -hmm. Marion, when being in DC, Marion taught us how to count. You know, mm -hmm. he was I.O. And whenever somebody was running or doing something, or when he was running, Mark, look at me. Work them precincts out. It was fa and everybody I told, yeah, if we, we want to run for office. What should we do? I said, go see Mary. That's the first thing you need to do. I want to mm -hmm. go see Mary. I said, well, you, you want to win. Mm -hmm. You want to win. And then what was amazing, even at his later stages in life when he was going down, and the white right. folks didn't want to be around him, Latasha, and all this. Right. 
even white folks realized when they was running, they had to go see Marion. You got to go see Marion. They wanted to get elected because he could count. So I know what my audience wants to hear. Let's let's do a little bit of handicapping quickly if we could. If it just off the top of your head, Cliff, let's start with Georgia. Is is if we if black voters do what they're supposed to do in Georgia and show up and vote, and even to the point, I mean, we know there's going to be the suppression. So we've got to overvote. That don't mean large all. That means more of us turn out than ever. That mean us voting twice at a time. I know folks get that to it. Mark said overvote. But if if we do what we're supposed to do, can't we pick up those seats? In Georgia? Yeah, I mean, I think they're both winnable, right? I think, um, you know, part of it depends on us doing what we have to do. Part of it depends on that voter suppression issue. Part of it depends on some of these candidates, right? Because, you know, they they, they got to do their part, right? Like, you, you got to make it a little bit easier for us to talk to our folks <laughs> and get them excited. And so, you know, uh, uh, you know, some of these candidates, we really need them to step up and you know deliver in a different kind of a way but i believe if everything falls in line if we do our work if the candidates at least give us a fighting chance right to talk to our folks and be able to deliver a message about how it's about us and our issues and to be able to do so with integrity um if, if that happens and if we get the kinds of resources that is ne- going to be necessary the fight against this voter suppression i believe both of these georgia seats are going to be um, going to be doable, and, and and you know, and the second one is a really critical one because that second one is the is the open seat. It's a jungle primary. That race is probably going to spill over into January, right? Because you got two months after the after the regular election before you have the, the runoff, and at that point, literally, depending on what happens with the Senate seats and the rest of these states and, and Kentucky and South Carolina, at that point, that seat could be absolutely critical, and in all eyes of the country will be on Georgia. Wait a minute, you mentioned what some of these candidates need to do. Who, who ain't doing what they're supposed to do? What are they preventing us from doing? If you want to name well, that. Well, <laughs> you know, we Mark trying to, see, huh? Mark trying to start something. See that, Right, Mark? right, right, right. I'll I say that. call him out. Because you know we will call him out now. Yeah, so yeah, I'm I'm gonna say, we don't need no I'm gonna, I'm say this. No, I'm going to say this. I'm going to need John Ossoff to come harder than he came when he ran for Congress. Right. I'm going to need him to be a little bit different than he was when he ran for Congress. I'm going to need him to address our issues a little bit differently than when he when he ran for Congress. Right. And so and we and we see what could happen because he ran, he lost. Lucy McBath ran and she won. Right. So one of these things is not like the other. And so I'm going to need him to, <laughs> to, to bring a little something different if he's really going to expect black voters to just come out and save the day for him. Because I'm not going right. to lie to my folks as I try to mobilize mobilize our, our, our folks. We're never going to tell a lie. That's is, right. Is Lucy going to be okay, Latasha? I think Lucy's going to be okay. Lucy has a, <laughs> one of the things that she's done, um, they make a fight for her, but she's a fighter. But one of the things that she's done is um, she has built a really broad-based coalition. She has a core group of, of, of black voters, a base, strong a base of black voters, but she has a sizable white vote, voting population in that district. I want to remind people the seat that she holds is the same seat that Newt Gingrich held, right? Mm-hmm. So people need to understand how extraordinary that is. She has that seat, but she mm-hmm. has a group of women in that area who are really who have been. Some of them, actually, at my understanding, have voted Republican in the past, 
but they are very, very concerned about the police and the gun violence issue in the schools. And right. so um, as they were activated and working around that, what she has been able to do is to build a broad-based coalition in her district of people that believe in her and believe in her integrity, particularly in leadership, or, um, in her integrity and her leadership around the ending um, the anti-gun violence. No, white women are abandoning Trump in the suburbs at, at the polls say at a higher rate than white women overall are divorcing their husbands. So, I mean, <laughs> that's important. Um, Kentucky, you got mm. the brother made a good run for it. I think he probably turned on too late. Mm -hmm. A little more time, he probably would have won that. So is, Mick, is Mitch McConnell gone? I mean, we can make a difference there too as black voters in Kentucky, right? Definitely, definitely. And, and Latasha and I were in Kentucky. We were in Louisville just, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago for that for that election. You know, we were we were in, and I know a lot of your your watchers and listeners will know um, that in in Jefferson County, Kentucky, where Louisville is, where most of the black voters are, there was only one polling place for over six hundred thousand voters. Right now, it was a mega polling place, whatever. Granted that, but one polling place, which creates a whole whole set of issues including that we were there at six o'clock when they closed the doors. That's an issue in and of itself, right? They need to change. If they really want to get rid of Mitch, they got to change those hours, right? Because closing your polls at six o'clock is a recipe for disaster. But we were there when they closed the doors in people's faces. And we helped lead the chance of open the door, open the door. Um, in that critical moment when they first closed the door, you can see it in people's eyes where some people were thinking, what am I going to do? Do I just turn around? Oh, I guess I got to leave. Like there, there was that moment where, you know, there was some some resignation that, oh, it is what it is. And so we helped lead the chance of open the doors, open the doors to let folks know you 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 demand that your vote be counted. And it was really moving that, you know, the sister, one of the sisters that that asked us to come there because we never go a place unless we're invited. Right. We learned that from the civil rights movement. And one of the sisters that asked us to go there, she's the dynamic sister, president of the, of the uh, Louisville Urban League. Before we left, she said, I am so glad y'all came because y'all helped give folks courage. Yeah. And that meant the world to us, right? And the fact that those doors eventually did open so that folks got to, got to cast those votes was really important. And so with all that said, if that same energy, right, and the folks that, that got ignited um, um, for that campaign, and you're right, he did start a little bit late. If he, if he had a couple more weeks, just a couple yeah. more, heck, maybe even a couple more days, yeah. I think he could have pulled it out. But again, this, is another, this is another one of those examples where, um, um, what's her name, McGrath? Right. He got to come harder than just talking about, you know, That's being right. a, a- And address our called? issues in this moment, like Booker right. Rules. I mean, right. I think this is not the time for safe, moderate, white politicians. It's I mean, not. Joe Biden is trying is about to pick a black woman. That's right. He gets it. He doesn't say, I ain't gonna pick no black woman. He gets it. Mm -hmm. Why don't they? Mm -hmm. That's well, right. No, I will say this, that at the end of the day, she has a great opportunity because mm -hmm. we all, the question at, at every discussion we had is, when are y'all gonna arrest the murderers of Breonna Taylor? That's right. And so at the end of the day, we need to hear that coming from her lips. That's we right. need to hear her put that kind of pressure on it. So if she wants to deliver something, she got it right in her hands right now. That's yeah. right. So two more. Um, can Doug Jones keep his seat? Mm -hmm. A lot of the, a lot of the, 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 the white posters you hear from are saying no. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of demographics and disproportionality of political power, 
all on when can we win that seat in Mississippi? Mike Espy, we mm. got the numbers. Mm. We need to show up. That's right. That's right. I mean, part of it is show up, but we, we also have to create a fair process. I mean, ultimately, what winds up happening, we keep putting the burden on Black folks to do more, right, because folks feel it. And so ultimately, even in, if, if, if let's take Mississippi for an example, you know, you got an election official three weeks ago saying, sending out an email saying, quote, the Blacks. She was concerned that the Blacks were registering and had these registration activities. So let's be honest about the, in, in the institutional racism and the structural racism that is embedded in the process and those that are overseeing this process. And you shave a couple of votes here and shave a couple of votes there because even in Mike Espy's last race, that was the highest turnout of black voters I mean, of, of progressive voters that any Democratic candidate had received um, in the state of Mississippi, it is possible. It is certainly possible, but you're also working against different factors. You're working against the factor of, and, and I'm raising this because it becomes frustration, frustrating to me when, when the, the burden of democracy is placed on the back of Black folks. They, um, how much we got to carry? At the end of the day, Black people are now voting on par as our white counterparts. We're voting literally the same percentage as our white counterparts. And I you, and I, I even had a, a white guy to ask me, he said, you know, I don't understand since y'all did so much to fight for the white right to vote up at Harvard, um, fight for the right to vote. I don't understand why y'all only voted, why y'all more of y'all don't vote. And I was like, well, you know, that's really interesting because actually black votes, black voters voting on par with white voters, being that black white people have received all the political, economic benefits of voting. Why y'all ain't voting at higher rates? The bottom line is there's something fundamentally built into the system is not to support a full democracy of any of us. And particularly when you talk about black voters. So I think that Mississippi, we got the numbers right now, the win in Mississippi. And so I don't think it's just a matter of voter turnout. We've got to do some structural change as well and hold people accountable who are standing in the way and are marginalizing and are suppressing our vote as well. Yeah, yeah, a couple of things on Mississippi. Not only did we see Mike Eskey's race a couple of years ago um, get higher turnout, higher votes than we had previously seen, even last year in their state legislative races, there were a couple of a, a couple of surprises. In North Mississippi, there was a sister that won the legislative seat in a district that had previously been won by a Republican by something like thirty something points, right? Um, but she was able to win this seat, right? And so. Um, so we're seeing all throughout the state that little by little that, that, that we're seeing these shifts taking place and counties are, are shifting and, and, and legislative seats are, are turning. But to Latasha's point, you know, there's a sister right now who's running in, in one of the Delta um, counties. She's running for like the election commission and she's got a crisis right now. She may not be able to, to, to run because she's getting evicted from the land that she's on. She's having to move her home, move her trailer from the land that she's that she's on, has lived there for years, never had any problems, but all of a sudden now that she's running, she's getting evicted off the land. It's got shades of like Fannie Lou Hamer and many other people who were kicked off land, you know, who were sharecropping and got kicked off land as soon as they started trying to register voters, right? And so, but here's the interesting part of the story. The attorney representing the person who's kicking her off the land is the attorney for one for the candidate, for the other candidate in this race. And so it's clear that there are political motivations and what, right. what they're doing to her. These are the kinds of things that, you know, in, in, in Mississippi, 
in, in rural counties, even in the cities. These are the kind of tactics that we're up against. And so that's why we try to tell people, look, you've got you to be willing to get in the, in the dirt, right? You've got to be willing to get in some of these places, in some of these states, and in some of these counties, or in the case of Louisiana, some of these parishes. But you've got to be willing to get and go to some of these places where a lot of this stuff takes place in the darkness, outside of the light. We've got to be willing to expose some of this. If you can't take seriously this system struggle in this Delta County in, 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 um, in, in Mississippi, then don't come to us trying to get us to save the world, trying to save That's the right. country. Right. That's right. Um, in this one seat or this one state That's or whatever right. that you think is important, you've got to engage wherever right. our folks are. That's why we say Black voters matter everywhere. Real quick, Doug Jones. Yes. He has an uphill <laughs> battle. I mean, he, he has an uphill battle. I mean, I think that it was the kind of um, the kind of turnout that that he had last time. I don't anticipate he's going to have that this time. Um, it was in a hard-fought race. I don't think it's totally out for him to win, to be honest. But the problem is, you know, he also has several votes that he voted with Republicans. So there's only so much we can do. When you align to the very forces that have been marginalizing our community, I mean, there's only so much we're going to do. It's going to be hard to get Black folks on fire about him. Oh, so yeah. I just, I, I think that he has an uphill battle. There are some things that he's done, actually, that has been very good for the community, Right. And I think that he's tried to walk this really kind of um, interesting balance between a state that the majority, 75% of the state, are hardcore Republicans. And so on, on some level, I think the politics have dictated, um, have dictated how he shows up in some of those spaces. But that's a hard, that's a hard walk to, to uh, a hard walk that, that he has. I'd be interested to hear how Cliff, what Cliff's thinking around it. Yeah, I think, you know, even if we go back to, um, like, after he won, we and the partners that we worked with in the state did an open letter to him where we told right. him some of the things that we expected him to do, right? And in that letter, we said, look, you know, we, we're not under any illusions. You are the Democratic senator from the state of Alabama, right? So we weren't asking for him to be, you know, uh, a, a, a Bernie, you know, type or, 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 or a Senator Warren, right? Uh, but there was there was a baseline that we said we expect out of you in terms of holding the line on on health care, right? Um, holding the line on civil rights and voting rights, and then extending the, the um, restoring the Voting Rights Act um, on a range of issues. You know, not going along with Trump on his crazy the crazy things that he was. There was like a, a baseline of things that we said you've got to do, including some staffing issues, which he which he became basically the first. I think he was the first Democratic uh, or the only one. Who had a black chief of staff, right? And so there were some true. things that he followed through on. There are certainly some votes where he fell short. But when you look at like some of the, the, the key votes that were up, heck, even if you just look at the impeachment vote, when he cast that vote, there were people at the time who said that is the kiss of death, right? And so there were a range of things. And then there's some other issues, you know, there's there's some stuff on HBCUs and some stuff on agriculture um, and health that he did some good stuff on. So I think he's done enough. So that people can make the case, right, that even in this tough position he's in of being in the state of Alabama, that he held the line on issues that were important important to us, particularly issues that were important uh, uh, to Black folks in particular that dealt with race, you know, like I say, and Black health and things of that nature, and voting rights. And so I think that there's enough there that, you know, people can work 
on the basis of the issues and be doing so with integrity, right? When we say, and, and to a certain extent, that's something he has going for him now that he didn't really have going for him when he, the, the first time he ran, all he could really say was, I was the attorney that prosecuted the, um, you know, the, the people that, 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 that did the bombing that killed the four little girls, right? Which was something, but, you know, people were still like, well, where, where are you really going to be on these policies? Now we've got a better sense of where he's going to be on the policies. I think all things being equal, you know, he's got a leg to stand on. And so we'll see what happens because, again, at the end of the day, it's in the midst of a pandemic, right? It's in a state where, where it's to Natasha's point about the, the voter suppression, it's in a state which has expanded the vote by mail, but... You still gotta, you still gotta have a witness. You still gotta get a notarized um, signature on your vote by mail. You still gotta have a copy of your of your photo ID. And so, just having vote by mail isn't the end all be all because there's still ways that voter suppression can creep its way into um, vote by mail. It's not a perfect system, but right now, what we know is it's the best way for our folks to vote um, without having to risk their lives. Absolutely. You read my mind. I was going to ask you about about vote by mail. Um, how can people listening get involved with Black Lives Matter? So we are, they can check us out. We're very active um, on social media and our website. So Black Voters Matter, we have, if you go to www.blackvotersmatterfund.org, you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, Black Voters MTR. You can also text us. You can text We Matter um to seven nine seven nine seven nine um and all of those platforms we regularly daily update what we're doing what we've got coming up in addition to that we usually find like when there's volunteer opportunities we list those as well so that's you know you can find us hit us up folks my dear dear friends and comrades doing doing the very important work that needs to be done we must talk to them more often um and get more involved. And y'all know I'm here if you need me. I don't just talk on the radio, give me an assignment. Let me know what I can do to really come in and, and help because we need work, real tangible work and organizing in all of our communities. If we have any hope of being successful, any, either of you, either of you have a favorite for vice president for the pick? <laughs> yeah. yeah, all I'm gonna say is she better be a woman, she better be black. <laughs> that's right my, my that's favorite my black woman isn't on the short list but um but oh, yeah I agree. huh okay. who would that be Natasha yeah that's yeah. right that's my kid <laughs> <laughs> oh, you gotta love your friends that's right <laughs> you know but let me let you know, me say this a folk and go ahead no no it's a, it's a different topic you go on and then I, I want to you know, say is I was in a conversation with some very high-ranking black women elected officials. And he said, Mark, why is it only a choice of three or four? It's dozens of us who are qualified. I said, yeah, you, you got a point. And so it ain't far-fetched to think about Latasha Brown for VP. But go ahead, Cliff. That's right. We're going we're gonna to start a draft Latasha Brown movement right here. But, but let me say this, uh, because before, you know, before National News, before MSNBC and CNN, you were the first person to have us on your show as we were That's on the right. bus. 
on our That's very right. first bus tour. That's right. On the bus so, right. you know, we just we are just always so thankful for you and for your voice and the consistency that you've shown over the years. We are just so thankful for you. Well, you Amen. know, that that's that was my responsibility to all the friends. And as I said, I lift you all up as, you know, the dedicated few who are doing the real work. I was just lecturing some some um, not so millennials even, you know, so y'all just on Twitter. What you talking about? I, I don't see y'all doing nothing but tweeting. <laughs> they got mad at me, but then they finally shut up and listen. I said, that's not, that's not tangible. What you gonna do with all the likes and retweets? And then white man Twitter, white man Facebook has the algorithm that controls who That's sees right. likes your stuff anyway. So it's not even right. genuine. That's right. It's not even you a real measurement of what you of the work you're doing. That's right. right. They got real okay. they might call you Latasha and tell them I jumped on them, but you know. Okay. I, you know, I'm gonna use a sports analogy that I probably shouldn't use, but I know you somebody that, that I mean, congratulations to your son on his baseball achievements. But um, you know, in, in baseball and in other sports too, you know, you've got you know, you got this obsession with like the new stuff, like you know, being able to hit a set a certain angle and all this stuff. And, and right. what you find is that the fundamentals leave, running the bases, right, and, and doing certain things, certain defense, right? And really within our movements, we see a lot of the same stuff, right? There are a lot of new tools and social media is one of them, and there's all kinds of technology and all that's important, but at the end of the day, you gotta have the fundamentals. And so like, like what you're talking about, or like I was, I was talking to some folks the other day and I was like, you know, how many of you got a pen in your hand and are ready to take some notes? You know, Brother Malcolm used to talk about, I don't trust somebody who doesn't have a watch on, right? Uh, who, who, who's, who's not conscious of time. Like there are some fundamentals. Listening is a fundamental skill. You That's show right. me an organizer who's not good at listening That's and right. that person's not really an organizer, organizer, right? But sometimes yeah. we're so obsessed now with the outward communication that our listening skills aren't there. And so there's some fundamentals to this, this organizing thing that we that we do that it's easy to lose track of when you get caught on, like you said, how many followers you got and, and how many retweets you got. That's important. I'm not gonna say it's not important, right? We right. We, we, we depend on social media right. outreach a lot, especially in this coronavirus context, but it's, it's not a replacement for some of the, just the old fashioned fundamentals of how to organize. Yeah, kind of like your handle, brother, Cliff's Notes. You remember you used to say in the front page, this is not a substitute. For <laughs> that's right. That's right. You got to read the book. Yeah, it's, it's Twitter handle. And speaking of reading the book, and I know you all appreciate what I'm about to say as we close. Um, I've told, told everyone, young and old, go back, look at that funeral, and isolate the real eulogy in that funeral. And that was James Foster. That's James Foster, without that's question. Right. That's now, right. And if you do that, you understand that that was a system mm. and a class mm. and a discipline. Oh, that was a master class. Yeah, and see, but see, a lot of us, see, if we said to some folk today, Latasha, and this is a whole nother show. Okay, y'all, <laughs> we need to go in the classroom and do workshops That's the way right. Ben That's Chavis right. told me, you know Ben Chavis told me this morning? He said, mm -hmm. back in those days, y'all, you always had to have a book in your backpack. That's right. You better with your other fellow SNCC people, you would take out and see who was reading what. How many That's of us still right. carrying around a book anymore? That's right. That's right. Well, That's you right. Know, and Kwame Ture, Stoke Michael called the work study. So we got a lot to do. This will not be the yeah, last we got time. Some, and we're doing that too. And we'll let you know, we're actually creating a series. We started kicking off an organizing series next 
um, in the next couple of weeks. Um, but we're we're having a series so that we're doing political education that Black Voters Matter is going to offer because that is part of the issue. Love it. With new organizers in this, it's one thing to actually be active. It's a whole nother thing on organizing. Those things are not mutually um, inclusive. Let me know. Cliff out, right. Latasha. Thank you. thank you. We thank you. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.